Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today's episode starts with a minor confession. I'm super excited because we are recording this episode at Endo 2022 in Atlanta. It's been three years since we've had Endo in person, and it's been three years since we've recorded an episode of this podcast in person. So I'm excited. And it's so fitting that the first in-person guest in three years is one of the first guests to ever come on the podcast. Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor. Dr. Pryor is a professor of endocrinology at the University of British Columbia and founder and scientific director of the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research. She's presenting some fascinating research here at Endo 2022, and her abstract is entitled Epidemic of Subclinical Ovulatory Disturbances During SARS-CoV-2 Pandemic, an Experiment of Nature. Thank you for joining us once more on the podcast, Dr. Pryor. Happy to be here. Thank you. So let's start with what do we mean by ovulatory disturbances and what generally causes them? Good question. There are people who will say that ovulatory disturbances don't even occur. Hmm. Basically, the current understanding is that if you have a regular, predictable, about month apart cycle, then everything is working fine. You have enough estrogen, you're making an egg, you have enough progesterone, don't worry, dear, is the kind of response. However, when we start to look carefully at ovulation, and usually by measuring progesterone or something progesterone does, then you see that there's a huge variation in the amount of progesterone produced. So when I say ovulatory disturbances, I mean that the time from release of an egg, ovulation, until the next period is too short for a pregnancy to implant, or that ovulation didn't occur at all. How might frequent disturbances of this kind affect someone's overall health if it was a regular thing that was happening? Well, first of all, it's normal Mm -hmm. to have some disturbance of ovulation. So, for example, years ago, we did a study in which we made women, before they were eligible, have a normal cycle length two times in a row, but also a normal luteal phase or progesterone length two times in a row. And despite that, 85% of the women in the study over one year had at least one ovulatory disturbance, usually short luteal phase. So it's not terribly uncommon. No, it's very common. We don't really know its frequency. However, in longitudinal studies, it's basically an unexplored area. So why does it matter? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it would affect fertility. So you could have a perfectly regular cycle, assume everything is fine, but not be normally ovulatory and therefore not be able to get pregnant. That's the upfront one for most women. But what we learned through more than 30 years of research now is that you need enough progesterone as well as enough estrogen to prevent bone loss when you're premenopausal, when you're still menstruating. And the evidence is very strong that if you don't menstruate normally during 
and ovulate normally, that you will be at increased risk for fractures mm. later. So we know that very well. But the perspective which I've now learned over all these years is that estrogen and progesterone are meant to be in balance. Mm -hmm. Their actions are important because estrogen is a powerful growth stimulator. It's a proliferative hormone. It's, it's very important. But over proliferation or overgrowth is a risk for cancer and other problems. So you, progesterone's job is to make cells differentiate, become more mature, and to control estrogen's proliferation. So you need a good balance of the two. So the evidence is that if you don't have that balance most of the time, not only are you at risk for infertility, bone loss, but also early heart attacks, breast cancer, and endometrial cancer, mm. lining of uterus cancer. So understanding what causes these disturbances and maybe finding some ways to, to limit them would be really, really important, which is one of the reasons why I find your research kind of fascinating because of what it's going to reveal to us a little bit. So before we get into what you what reveal. Do know, <laughs> what do we know about what causes ovulatory disturbances? Yeah. Not a lot because hmm. very little research has been done. We've shown that women who are overly concerned about gaining weight and therefore very conscious of what they eat, what's called cognitive dietary restraint, usually occurs in normal weight women, but it's stressful making choices about what to eat. That that is associated with ovulatory disturbances. And it's through a stress or cortisol mechanism. We also know that a whole host of things like being ill, overtraining, losing weight, even the stress of planning to go on a diet to lose oh. weight are enough to disturb ovulation. The concept I have is that the brain hypothalamus body is trying to protect a woman who's under duress from pregnancy when she doesn't have the ability to handle it healthily. Mm. So it's a very fundamental control mechanism. With this specific research that you're presenting here at ENDO, there's a specific angle that you're exploring now in this. Can you tell us a little bit about what you hope to discover or answer with your current research? We set out to do a single cycle study. We intended to do lots more women than we were able to recruit during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We were collecting urines for environmental contaminants. We had done the same design study 10, 12, 13 years previously. So we were following the same design, the same questionnaires, the same enrollment criteria, the same recruitment methods, the same daily diary. And in these studies, we had to document whether they were normally ovulatory or not. Because of the pandemic in particular, we documented it using a non-invasive method, which is quantitative basal temperature. In other words, we all know that progesterone raises the temperature a little tiny bit, mm -hmm. but we made that basal body temperature sort of folk tool into something scientific by validating it mm -hmm. and could use that during the pandemic. 
we were funded to collect urines in two phases of the cycle. It was just serendipity that by the time all the administrative ethics and everything was sorted, we were into the pandemic. Right. It's hard to plan around the pandemic, but every once in a while, in a way, the stars align and you end up with some important, significant data. Um, It was a difficult study to do. For mm -hmm. example, 840 women contacted us, but we were able to recruit only 125, just to give you some idea. However, those 125 women's data showed us some very important things. Can you tell us a little bit about the questionnaires that you used in the, in the study and sort of what kind of questions might have been asked and what they were specifically intended to measure? The fundamental questionnaire was an epidemiology one because mm-hmm. we have across Canada done a, a large study of osteoporosis. So we used the same questionnaire since we know what the population level of those answers and questions are. So that was basic things like employment and ethnicity and complete reproductive history. But in addition, we asked women to record daily on a semi-quantitative scale their experiences, flow, cramps, headaches, sleep problems, and positive things like feeling of energy, feeling of self-worth, appetite, and also to assess outside stresses. Right, right. So we had their daily experience over the same time in which we had their flow and their cycle length and their ovulation. So we have information from pre-pandemic where these same questionnaires were used Mm -hmm. and the same questions about, you know, what sort of stressors are you under? And then we can compare that to what does that look like in the pandemic era? That's fascinating because I'm sure we're going to find some differences. So why don't we get to there? What did you find? Well, let's start with the sort of fundamentals that the study that we did more than a decade before and the study we did during the pandemic had women of the same age, women Mm -hmm. of the same body mass index, weight and height. The cycle lengths were identical, 29 days on average. Socioeconomic similarities were quite remarkable. The same educational background. So the majority in both studies were university graduates. Slightly different ethnicities with fewer white people in the most recent study, but it reflects the census data now better than it did before. But fewer women in the pandemic study were working full time whether that was directly pandemic related or not, we don't know. And the other important difference is that even fewer had ever had a child. So 92% had never had a child. And what was it before? These, it was 86 or oh, something. That is quite a difference. Yeah. So basically very similar populations. Mm-hmm. And the cycle lengths were identical. So if nobody had done further assessment, they would have assumed there was no change related to the pandemic. But because we were assessing the luteal phase length and we were assessing whether or not they ovulated, we discovered that 63% of those women were not ovulating normally. Well, that's a large percentage. They had what you would call subclinical ovulatory disturbances. 
And so when you look at that, what data helps you understand why that might be? This is fascinating because none of the variables that we measured in both groups explained that right. difference in ovulation. However, when we looked at their daily menstrual cycle diary, we could analyze it using something called principal components analysis, which puts things that go together into bins or factors, they're called. Mm -hmm. So the original study came up with five factors. So did the pandemic study. But when you look at what's in those factors, they are significantly different, especially increased outside stress, increased frustration, increased depression, increased feeling of anxiety. Mm. And along with that, sleep problems and headaches. I'm sure for a lot of people listening to this podcast, if you think about before the pandemic and after, this probably rings true for a lot of us as well, that there's increased stressors here. So I have to ask, you know, now that you've found some of these things, I, I can't help but wonder what's next. We've been able to be illuminated to a little bit about how the stressors are impacting some of these ovulatory disturbances. So what's next? How's this going to impact patient care down the road or maybe future research down the road? Like what's, what's next? What I'm hoping will come out of it is that more physicians understand that knowing cycle length alone is not sufficient, mm -hmm. that we need to understand about progesterone as well as estrogen. So assuming that all is well, as long as they have a cycle that's only 35 days long, that's just not okay. Now, mm -hmm. we need progesterone as well. The second is, I think we need to know that women who had disturbances in ovulation during the pandemic, as life returns, hopefully, to more normal, that it recovers, which normally the ovulatory disturbances are highly reversible. We've shown it previously with marathon training, for example. You train for a marathon and you have some short luteal phase and anovulatory cycles. By the cycle after the marathon, you're back to normal luteal length. But we need to show it on the more population level during recovery from the pandemic. But if they don't recover, then inquiring about social support, inquiring about you know ongoing stresses like inflation and things now and then if needed be giving them back cyclic progesterone which is basically for the moment curing the imbalance in estrogen progesterone but also seems to feed back to the hypothalamus and encourage normal ovulatory cycles earlier I did see that you were the founder and scientific director of the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research. I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the center and okay. what you're trying to do there. The important thing, I think, is that what we learn in research becomes accessible to ordinary women so they can improve, prevent problems later. So on the SEMPOR website is the Menstrual Cycle Diary. It's accessible to anyone who wants to use it. Anyone who wants to use it in a research study needs to contact us because that's a proprietary use. Sure, sure. And the quantitative basal temperature method is also available for anyone, as are instructions about using cyclic progesterone therapy, which I think 
is a very important and underused tool in endocrinology today. So if any of you listening are interested in more on that, that website again is www.cemcor.ca, www.semcor.ca. Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for once again coming on the podcast. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in learning more about the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research, you can visit their website at www.semcor.ca. That's www.cemcor.ca. Is there a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast? Let me know by emailing me at podcast at endocrine.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.